What is happening, everybody? Welcome to Off the Rails, a recovery podcast dedicated to ending the stigma around addiction uh, by open discussion on all things recovery related. My name is Mark, and with me always are Dave and Jared. Today we have a very special guest, Dave. Yeah, our next guest probably needs uh, no introduction when it comes to the addictions world, uh, but I'll do a little one uh, anyway. Uh, born in Manchester, England. I uh, grew up in a musical family and uh, in his 20s even worked at uh, the famous Abbey Road Studios where he played bass guitar for Queen David Bowie and Elton John. Uh, he's got an incredible story uh, from success and striving to homeless and alone. Uh, now sober, has helped over 5,000 addicts and alcoholics recover from addiction over the past 20 years. We have on an addiction expert, Dr. Rob Kelly. Rob, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Great to be here. It's a pleasure, absolutely. Let's do this deal. Right, all right. Sounds amazing. So, Rob, today we get to have a pretty special episode. Uh, as we were saying to you before we uh, started rolling, um, we're going to get you to kind of share your story, uh, your experience with addiction. And then uh, we're going to kind of transition into a shooting the professional shit where, uh, you know, you kind of share your knowledge with us and what you have going on today. Excellent, excellent. Sounds good. So, Rob, just to get started, um, would you like to introduce yourself? My name's Dr. Rob Kelly, or Rob, or Rob Kelly, or Robert, whichever you go for. Uh, originally from England, Manchester in England. They have a famous football team there. Uh, now living in San Antonio, Texas, but at the moment, I'm in South Carolina with a patient. I had a, uh, Rob, I, I thought I had an England jersey here I was going to put on, but it's actually a Scotland, and I didn't think you'd want me to do that, so I didn't do that. <laughs> me and the wee Scottish people get on just great nice, so we do. <laughs> that was a terrible Scottish accent. Guys in Scotland, I'm sorry about that. It was terrible. It was more of an Irish, Northern Irish. So, Rob, uh, can you kind of tell us about your early life and what life was like for you growing up? Yeah, so I was I was born in Moss Side, Manchester. For those guys that don't know what Moss Side is, it's a bit like Beirut with lights. It was rough. It was tough. It was back in the day. And uh, I, I grew up there and uh, grew up on a council estate, which is like the project. It's a poor housing estate. Uh, I was wanting to know. I, I wanted better than that. I don't know why. I don't know what inside me because all my brother and sister was they're fine living in that sort of lower class income bracket. But somehow I wasn't. So I was born in a musical family by the age of nine. I'm on stage with my, with my auntie and uncle playing in uh, clubs and pubs around Manchester and Liverpool and all them places. And uh, at the age of nine, I took my first drink of alcohol from my uncle on stage in Liverpool because um, I was scared to death. And he calmed me right down. Uh, and there, I didn't know it then, but I know it now was my alcoholism. I just kicked off with that one drink alcoholism in the family nobody told me that and then throughout my whole schooling which was like a secondary school it was a again lower income school I just want I just knew I wanted to do something with my life so playing in bands most of my life and then I got into the recording studio side of it where I was a session musician I started at uh, a little studio in Stockport just outside Manchester owned by 10cc they had a few hits over in, in uh, America and Canada, I think. 
Um, so what happened was I was gigging with these guys, you know, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, packing all the stuff into my car, driving for an hour, two hours, unloading, all that stuff that musicians do, especially when you're young like we were. And then all of a sudden I get offered to go into the studio. Uh, I went in, they, they give me a sheet of music, and I plug my headphones in, I played this, you know, sight music, and then they give me another piece and I played it again, they give me another piece played a separate piece and I came out and they give me an extortionate amount of money for that back in the day. So let's say for instance, I was getting 20 pounds for live gigs. They gave me like a hundred pound for like, I don't know, 12 minutes work. And I was thought, I've got a second. I'd rather be doing this. So I pulled out and I did that full time for a little while. And then uh, I wanted to go to university, but Back in the day, people were going to university. Nobody's gone to university in our in our family. Just forget about that. You know, become have a nine to five job like your dad. Dig roads in holes with the gas company, and you'll be good. Have a couple of kids. Go to the bar every Friday and Saturday and Sunday night, and jobs are good and should be all right. Didn't want that, and I don't know why till this day, guys. I I didn't want it. I just didn't want it. I just I did what I know now with the study and the research that my company has done about the brain. The, the alcoholic brain is different to the normal brain. You know, there's three parts of that brain. Uh, there's uh, the basal ganglia, hypothalamus, and the amygdala that's different to the normal person. Um, so I knew what was different. And so I did. I applied for a, a job at Abbey Road. Um, I was the youngest by far that applied. The rest were seasoned bass players. And I remember I started looking at the studio being daunting. And I've, I just have one beer just to calm me down. So I did got the audition, went back home, got a letter. I passed it and was invited to a second audition. So my alcoholic brain said, if I had one beer for the first audition, I've got to have two for the second audition. So I passed that. I had seven auditions for that position. So by the time the seventh audition come around, I was shit-faced. I, was, I had seven beers outside the studio. Went, don't remember walking in, don't remember doing the session, don't remember anything. I remember waking back up on a Wednesday or something back home in Manchester thinking, oh, my God, I've lost a day and I've obviously not got the job. A couple of days or weeks later through the mail came a, a letter saying I got the job. So that told me that whenever I drank, I was amazing. And that's what I continue to do. And I've, I've played with some amazing guys. I put myself through uh, Oxford University <clears throat> with the help of the money. And I was also a very, very young Freemason. With the contacts I had there, um, there I was. And then life really started to take off for me, which meant more drinking, and more drugs. And eventually, Abbey Road fired me. for. How can you get fired from the music industry for being a drunk and a drug taker? It's almost impossible to do that, you know, but they'd, they'd let me go and I never got any phone calls. And, you know, I was just, I don't know, man. It's just life seemed to take a turn for me somewhere and I don't know where it did. Because one minute I'm on top of the world, I'm driving Porsches at the age of 16, 17 and living in nice houses. And all of a sudden, everything was taken away and I had to get a normal job. But again, with the alcoholic, superb genius brain that we have, I turned that into a multi-million dollar deal and then got married. I had two children, thought that would stop me drinking. I remember going to the hospital when we had the first child. And I, I took a Bible with me because my wife was worried that the alcohol would take hold of us. So I took the Bible and the baby was born. I held the baby in my hand. I put my hand on the Bible. And I said to God, to my wife, to the doctor, that I would never drink alcohol again. Four hours later, I was drunk. 
I'm not too sure how that happened. It was the worst four hours of my life. You know, I was drunk again. Second baby came along, took two Bibles. And now I'm being serious, okay? Got two Bibles in my hand, turned up at the hospital, got the baby in the hand, doctor, two Bibles. Oh, same thing again. Worst six hours of my life. Then I was drunk. And it just went downhill from that. I mean, it really did. Uh, Rob, did you have any, like, bits of sobriety other than those, like, a uh, couple hours there? I did, you know. I, I got a week in once, and then I, I think I got, like, two months or three months in. And then it all went, you know, to crap again. And again, didn't know why then. You see, my peers, when I went to 12-step meeting, were saying, hey, you know, just keep coming back, Rob. It works if you work it. But nobody knew what the what worked. It's like, guys, I know what the problem is. Has anybody got a freaking solution here? Oh, Rob, just keep coming back. Just if you feel like a drink, take a warm yeah. bath or have a walk in the a walk in the park. I'm going to stab someone to death in a minute for the drink. The man walk in the freaking, what do you mean walk in the park? But that's what I keep getting told of people, you know? So when I stabbed my wife three times one night, you know, where was the walk in the park then? Yeah, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't get my head around these people that were supposed to be my peers in these meetings going, oh, just, it's okay, Rob, don't worry about it. It'll be okay. It wasn't okay. You know, it wasn't okay. And I kept screaming to these people, it wasn't freaking okay. Oh, don't worry, Rob, you know, hey, just, you know, first things first. Screw you, first things first. I wanted someone to tell me how the hell that the compulsion to drink could go from me because I was dying on a daily basis and these idiots were just going, ah, that's, ah, ah, ah. it was bullshit is what it was, you know? So coming towards the end, it was, it was havoc. We had the, one of them nice houses on the hill that everybody walked past and goes, God, look at him in there. He must be doing well. And look at the nice cars outside. It was mayhem behind them curtains. I fell down the stairs one day and nearly killed my child because I wanted to get past in the middle of the night having a drink because daddy wants a drink, you know, what sort of shit is that? But there I was, you know, living that horrible double life that we all live. So, yeah, I got I got a few weeks and months in, but, you know, like our research tells us, there's a time and a day if you don't sort it out that will come and you will relapse. And so I did time and time again. It was crazy. But I didn't know um, it was Rob, crazy in those days. Rob, did you find every every relapse it would get worse after each one? Hundred percent, progressive illness. Hundred percent, it never got any better, and I kept lowering my bar. Well, I did that, but I tell you what, I won't do is I will never drive with my children in the car coming back from London to Manchester, about a four-hour drive, doing 100 miles an hour, drinking out of a bottle of vodka with my two little babies in the back of the car. Crazy, you know? And I kept lowering the bar and lowering the bar until until one day, you know, I stabbed my wife one night because, well, what happened is I came down in the middle of the night because I wanted a drink. I knew I had a bottle somewhere in the kitchen because I'd hid it somewhere. The only thing about alcoholics hiding beer is they can never find it the next day. Everybody else can. Within like minutes, but the alcoholic can't find it. I went in and put that bottle and I come down and I found it in the kitchen. Now, if any alcoholics can relate to this, you know quite well, when I opened the cupboard and there was a bottle, it was like winning the lottery. It was an aha moment. It was like, oh, there's some vodka. We're looking good. But listen, I'm not going to drink it out of the bottle because I'm not an alcoholic. So while I'm looking for a, a 10 pound crystal glass in the, you know, to drink the, the vodka from my wife followed me downstairs and she snatched it off the side of the counter and she said, Rob, I think you've had enough, which is probably right. It's three o'clock in the morning. 
I was due to go to a, a you know a, a meeting at seven or eight. I should have said thank you, Mrs. Kelly. You are so right. Gone back to bed and slept, but I took a kitchen knife out and I stabbed her three times, and I finished my vodka. Went to the phone. I called the, I called a taxi. Just around the corner, they were there in seconds. And I called an ambulance and the police, and I fled to Spain as soon as I heard the ambulance in the distance. So yeah, that's where alcoholism took me. But I wasn't the worst. No, I, mean, no. I thought I, I thought oh my god, this is crazy. This could never happen. No, I wasn't the worst. I went, I went downhill from there. That was the highlight of my life when I look back at it. You know, I had my own house, car, I had my own company, and people around me just. I, a lot of money that I could do anything I want, but uh, yeah, it didn't go too well after that. Rob, I've, I've heard you talk about your uh, like your aha moment uh, before. Um, so before you kind of talk about that, what was the you know the little bit of time frame before that looked like for you? Just before that aha moment, it was sad because I'd been on the streets for fourteen months by then. Everyone had disowned me. She'd taken the kids, and uh, yeah, I was homeless. I remember the first night on the on the streets going where did that all just go wrong you know because one minute i'm sat in the hotel at the Savoy hotel with on john chatting and you know shooting the breeze and then the next thing i'm on the streets and like everyone disowned me i had no money or nothing it was crazy so, you know trying to even survive on the streets fighting every day literally physically fighting to stay alive every day or bare knuckle fighting to earn money so i could so I could get alcohol, and if I couldn't earn enough money, I'd steal it. Uh, it was just crazy. It was I'd tried suicide like six or seven times, and on two occasions it worked. My heart stopped, and then on the side of an old dirty road, late at night, two paramedics brought me to life again twice. And you know, I'll be honest with you guys, I hated them men for that because I just didn't want to live. I had nothing left to live for. You know, a lot of people talk about the jumping off stage. I didn't actually go to hell on the streets, but I could sure see it from where I was. That's for sure. And I was dying on a daily basis. And uh, yeah, it was it was just sad. But you know, the crazy part of it, I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I just thought I was going through some bad, bad stuff. And, you know, when I drank every day, it took the pain away. That's all I ever wanted for, for the pain to go away. Because the pain in my heart for my children and my wife and, you know, especially my children. Like every Christmas and New Year, I'd cry myself to sleep most nights, but they were the most painful for me because I knew I'd never see him again. And I haven't seen my youngest one ever again. It was 30 something years ago. I've still never seen her. So it was it was really traumatic. And the trauma from that uh, has tried to kill me. Not even not even alcohol wasn't even in the picture, but the suicidal thoughts after that were just trying to deal with that. It was uh, was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. So, Rob, you said you fled to, you went to Spain, was it? Yes, yes. Yeah, how was it How was it there? Is that when you kind of went into, uh, like, homelessness? My Spain, no, that was before homelessness. Okay. My Spain trip was uh, for about four months until my wife, you know, sorted that, and the attorneys that they wouldn't charge me or try to charge me with attempted murder or something or manslaughter. Because she obviously didn't die. I mean, she went got a couple of stitches. It was okay. But when all that was clear, I came home. But when I went to pay for the hotel, uh, she'd cancelled all my cards by then. And my dad called and he said, look, you've got one chance. There's a ticket at the at Spain. We've cancelled all your cards. You've got to come home. But a funny story, I remember coming out the hotel. He had no money on me, nothing. He cancelled all my cards. 
I had to get to the airport and there was a ticket waiting, but I didn't know how to get to the airport. So I came out and there's a taxi driver there. And, it, you know, when you try and speak to somebody else who doesn't speak your language, it's funny how you try and slow down. Can you take me? You still can't understand English. <laughs> Can you take me to the, air, the airport? What the freaking hell is the airport like this? But he, he can't, I don't know. It's like a bird. Yeah, I can take you. I've got no, no money. So I took my watch off. I had a, a, a Raymond Vial watch. And I said, I'll give you the watch if you take me. He's like, yes, yes, yes. And I called his friend over, make sure it was real. And I, I got in the back of this cab, and it must have been about 40 or 50 seconds. We got to the end of the road. He turned left, and I could see a plane. And I thought, I've just been done for like a two-minute taxi ride for like 10 grand watch. I was like, I want my watch back. I don't no comprendo, no comprendo. Yeah, I bet you don't understand now. You know, so I had to go into the airport and, and get a plane home. And when I did, that's when my wife, you know, I got, got a taxi back to the house and my wife was waiting with a suitcase packed and my two children and she and she left there and then. And then the homelessness. Well, in actual fact, what happened is I got hold of my attorney because I was now in the house. I told him to get my kids back. I gave him a big check. The next day, he went to court in the morning, brought my kids in the afternoon. I took my two, two, my two children, two babies in, probably about ages one and three, thereabouts, into the front room. I sat in front of the TV. I was so proud. I was kind of like, you know, you can't mess with me, you know, kind of thing. I remember walking in the kitchen and opening the beer, opening the fridge and just having one beer to celebrate the children, getting my children back. It was kind of a screw you kind of moment. And then three days later, when the police was kicking me awake, uh, I'd been drunk for three, four days and the kids hadn't been changed, any nappies or diapers had not been fed. I nearly killed them. And I got served unfit father papers. And I remember the police kicking me awake. I remember walking to the door with them sort of, you know, like you do, trying to wake up properly. And then a realization of what had just happened was crushing. I felt like the I, I felt my heart was crushed with these children and the police were there and the social services and the child protection was there. There was a big crowd at the door and my wife was there and her mother was, oh, it was horrible. And they took my two children out of my arms and the eldest one, three, was holding mommy's hand and they're walking down towards the gate and she turned around and she says, daddy, daddy, please don't go. You know, how resilient are kids after everything I just put them through? And then halfway down the path, she turned around. She's daddy, daddy, please get better. And as they got to the gate, they opened the gate and she turned around one more time. She says, daddy, daddy, please stop drinking. And I, I, and I, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So I went back to that, to the kitchen and I opened another beer. And four months later, it was all gone. Everything was gone. I was on the streets. Rob, uh, at what point were you, you know, did, were you like, I need I need to get some help? Even on the streets, I didn't think I was an alcoholic. Just thought, like I said, I just thought I was going through some bad stuff. So I was on there for about 14 months and I was abandoned by everybody. I called my family, put the phone down, turned up at the door, they called the police. Uh, so 14 months, months in, one morning, um, it's after all the suicide attempts and everything. I was walking down the back end of Manchester with all the factories. There was no people around there. It was early hours of the morning. It was pouring down with rain. I remember it like it was yesterday. And uh, I just started sobbing. I dropped down to my hands and knees and started sobbing like a baby. 
you know, the sobbing that aches your tummy. My stomach was all aching and I was crying. And I remember the rain hitting the back of my head, sort of coming around my face and my tears and the rain would be hitting the cobblestone road. And it was like a purple color splashing. It was so vivid. And I just looked up to the sky and I, I don't know why. Till this day, I don't know why. Because I wasn't a religious guy, that's for sure. And I just looked up and said, if there is a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. <clears throat> and then about 30 seconds later, a guy called Derek, I now know him to be Derek. He walked around the corner, complete stranger, and says, can I, can I help you? Do you need help? And I said, yeah, I'm dying of alcoholism. And he said he was a Christian, remember him saying that, and that he was a recovering alcoholic and that I could go back to his house and that I could stay there with him until I got back on my feet. And it was just like a godsend. And I went round to his house and, and that's kind of where my journey started to where I am today, I guess. Rob, uh, was it always alcohol for you or do you ever try like experimental drugs or, or do you identify? Oh, yeah. When I, when, I was, when I was at Abbey road, I was taking, I always took cocaine and speed and tried some marijuana once, but drugs don't really affect me. It's like I can take, you know, if I need to, I very rarely do take pain meds for something. But no, it was just pure alcohol with me. That's what it was. You know, alcoholics are born and drug, drug addicts are made. Is our latest research. Uh, alcoholism is a predisposition passed down from generation to generation. We are born with the hypothalamus and the basal ganglia, which is deformed. Uh, mixed with trauma makes the alcoholic. So when I first drink, I'm done. Whereas uh, addicts are made, they take drugs, you have the addicted personality, then you become a drug addict. You can't become an alcoholic. You can't drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic. That's not a possibility. Whereas you can take enough drugs to become a drug addict. That's the, that's the difference that people don't understand. That, you know, there's a hairline difference. That uh, We have the allergy. The alcoholics have the allergy with alcohol. The drug addict, drug, a drug addict doesn't have that with drugs. They just have that addictive personality that makes them take it, take it, take it until they die or get help with alcoholism from the first the alcohol passes me. I get the mental obsession. I get the physical allergy, which is the alcohol inside my body. So we found out that I'm actually allergic to ethanol in alcohol. We went really precise and then went into the brain and looked around and found out it was a predisposition. And that at a certain point in my drinking career, my brain, part of my brain, the hypothalamus, tells me to drink alcohol, but it tells normal people to drink water and eat food to survive. That's why I went days and weeks without food or water. My brain was telling me to drink alcohol, and that's something else that people don't understand. So it's kind of a biochemical reaction whenever I drink. That's what makes it a disease. It's, it's something inside me that I can't control. I've, I had no control of alcohol whatsoever. So when people go, you have a choice, You please stop drinking because of your children. It's like, yeah, I, I, I don't know why, because he didn't know back then I couldn't do that. You know, I went to these 12-step meetings and he go, well, you know, just stay sober for 24 hours. I couldn't do that. So then I thought that I was different and I, I just didn't get recovery. It wasn't that. It's just that nobody knew. And I got annoyed at them places for a long time because they were talking bullshit to me and that they didn't know they were killing people. And there are, there are meetings out there today that kill people when they're talking crap, you know, like have a bath if you feel like a drink and stuff like that. It's like there's a real solution here. Nobody was giving it to me when I was trying to trying to get well. So that's that was my you know personal journey. 
with, with all of that. That's why I went so deeply back into finding out with psychology. And then I went back to school and got a second PhD in behavioral science because you can't miss the, you know, the behavioral part out of the disease. And then you got the trauma. I had to go back and learn all about trauma because that's every alcoholic has trauma. Everyone in the world has trauma, but you have to define the trauma with alcoholics because we we hear and see things differently to the normal brain. You know, we, we definitely hear hear things different than what actually is said. So if me and my brother stood on the kitchen table and my mum walked in one day and she said to both of us, get down off that kitchen table, you, you idiot, get down. My brother jumps off and I freeze. And the reason I freed is because of the early trauma and the way my brain's built, because what I heard, get down off that table, you stupid idiot. So I froze with terror. Non-alcoholics don't hear that. Well, alcoholics do. So there's a lot more in-depth research that we've done around uh, alcoholics and alcohol as a whole. And, it, and it's our belief that uh, alcohol has 1% to do with alcoholism. It's just a symptom. It's like the spots to my chicken pots. It is not the problem. You know, I remember being outside a liquor store early one morning. Uh, and I knew this Pakistani guy that owned the store. So he used to open the store really early for me. And I was going into BTs. I had a little vest on, a pair of shorts. It was snowing. I had uh, I had flip-flops on. And I was shaking and banging headache and everything as I walked into the store. And he let me in. He closed the door behind me. And I put my £10 on the counter. And he put the bottle of vodka. And this was my reaction this day. And I don't know why I went... <laughs> I just held that the top of the bottle and my shakes went, my headache went, my mood changed. I stopped shivering and sweating. And I looked at the shopkeeper and I looked back at the bottle and it was like slow motion. And I looked back at him again and I looked at the bottle again. I went, holy shit, it's not the alcohol. And that was my aha moment to research the craziness out of this. Like 24 hours a day, I'm, I'm researching and going back and testing you know, we had a huge uh, research team that was backing us to do this. And we found a lot of stuff about alcoholism that still isn't. My, my, report, my reports and my findings will probably come out 2023, 24. But it is staggering about what we don't know about the alcoholic brain and alcoholism, alcoholics as a whole. So, Rob, when you're starting to get sober there, you know, the meetings weren't working. And um, was it more just you doing your research and really wanting to come up with what was going on that kind of kept you sober? Or did you find um, some tools in early recovery? I, I did. I mean, the, the, the problem, I mean, the medical fraternity is still baffled with alcoholism. So let's forget them for a second. All this crap about, you know, injection or a tablet you can take, it doesn't work for the real alcoholic. It might work for the drinker who abuses alcohol or the drug, but it doesn't work for the, for the real deal. So, uh, I found myself uh, a good 12-step meeting, and they have a book there. So the book that they have there, the first 164 pages, is one of the most fascinating pieces of literature I have ever read pertaining to the recovery of, of, of the alcoholic. So I used that. I found groups that use that well uh, and knew, were educated about that, and that helped me like 90% of my journey was down to that book. And, and meetings that pertain to that book. Rob, so you said yet yeah, you were uh, crashing at your at Derek's house, right? Yes. So uh, where, where did it kind of go from there? Well, I got, it takes a really weird turn here. So 
I hope your listeners are open-minded because I would never share this story for a long time because uh, you might think I'm crazy and I didn't want that. But yeah, I stayed at Derek's house and the second or third yeah. night he came to me and he said, Rob, you can stay for as long as you like. Don't worry about that, but you have to come to these 12-step meetings with me. Well, I hated them meetings. I hated the word of vengeance, but it was a dry bed and food and clothes and shower. So I went along to this meeting with him and on the way there, I'm, I'm looking around and as we get towards the meeting, I'm looking for a liquor store where I could steal some vodka. That was the honest truth. And uh, the idea was to get into the meeting, get to the bathroom, climb out the window, go to this liquor store, steal some vodka, get back, get back through the window, which is only this big, by the way. I don't know what I was thinking of. And I sat in the meeting, it was like go time. If I could get out, do that and get back without noticing, I went in the bathroom, I couldn't get out the the window because I just get my head through it and I was trying to squeeze my shoulders through it and I'm a pretty broad guy as you can tell <clears throat> so it didn't work so I went back and sat down really pissed off now I sat down with him and because he's 90 minutes in the UK in these meetings it's only 60 in America 90 minutes an hour and a half I had to sit there and they're all going down the room and they're pissing and the moaning and it's like oh god and then this guy probably 12 o'clock to me in a circle and he said my name's John I'm a recovered alcoholic and I looked over to him and I thought you can't say that in here. We're always recovering. There is no cure or anything for this disease. But then he started talking and he would say something that would pertain to the book. And, I'd, you know, he'd say blah, blah, blah on page 18. And I'd fly to page 18 and I'd go, wow, that, I never saw that in the book. And they'd go to another piece and say something crazy. He'd say something like, you know, Jesus Christ is mentioned in, 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 the, in, the, in this book. And I'm like, there is no way. There is no way does that happen. And he said, look at page 11, second word, and bang, there it was. So when he stopped sharing, the meeting was over. I went over and said, will you sponsor me? And he went, no, 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 no. And just before my heart hit the floor, he said, but I will be your spiritual advisor for a period of 12 weeks. So he told me to get this big book and a dictionary, to which I replied, I went to Oxford, I don't need a dictionary. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, bring a dictionary and a big book. And then Wednesday night, I had to be there for seven and work with him till eight. So I left Derek's house at six. I walked an hour to get to the guy's house. I spent an hour with him and back home for nine o'clock every Wednesday for 12 weeks. When I finished the 12 week, I knew that if I continued to do what he showed me, I would never drink ever again. When I, before I left, he put my hand on his shoulder and he said to me, Things will start changing for you from tomorrow. You've been chosen, blah, blah, all this crap that I was talking about. I didn't believe him. I said, listen, John, I'm not being funny, but I'm in this guy's house. I'm in the basement on a blow-up mattress. How can things change? Nobody know I'm there. Nobody knows I'm there. Well, that's, I'm sorry, but I love everything you've done, but that, that's not true. So I went home and I kind of walked different on the way home and my head was a little bit higher and, you know, the world seems brighter. And I went to bed and I got up and... You know, while Derek was at work, I was tidying around the house and he came home at lunchtime. He said, hey, Rob, the guy that sweeps the floor at our factory has just resigned. Do you, do you want the job? And I'm like, what? I'll take that job. So it's later turned that, that week turned into a full time job. And then someone gave me a broken down mini car to, only to get to work and back. And it was phenomenal. So after, I don't know, it's probably two or three weeks when I first got my pay packet, I went to the gas station or the petrol station and I bought him a little teddy bear and a card. And we wrote on the card, you know, John, thank you for introducing me to God. Took the compulsion to drink away and I walked back to his house. When I got there, there was nobody in. 
And I was hitting the door that hard that the next door neighbor on the right came out and says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, where's John? This looks like he's moved out. Where's John relocating to? And she said, John? I said, yeah, John, the guy that lived here, lives here. And she went, there's been no one in that apartment for three months that I know of. So I let her close the door and I'm like, widow, she must have had a bit of a drink, you know. Yeah. And the left-hand side, I knocked on that door and the guy came to the door and I said, can you tell me where John's moved to? And he said, John. And I'm like, geez, yeah, John. And he said, he's next door. He used, to, he used to live there. And he went, no, mate, I've been here for a year and that apartment is derelict. You can't go in it. It's dangerous. So I'm like, I, I know I have the right address. I know I do. So the next day I went back to the meeting where I'd met him three months ago. And I said to the chairman, I said, hey, do you remember John? And he said, John, I thought, here we go again. Why does people keep saying that? I said, the guy I was over near the cough machine speaking to after the meeting, the guy with the white hair and the beard and everything. And he said, no, he was actually over near the cough machine speaking to yourself. We were all laughing at you. Never found that man. But the program he taught me is the one I do today. That's why we have a 97. It's actually 100, but no one believes us. 97% success rate with over 7,000 patients over 30 years. I've been doing this and uh, it changed my life. And, and in, in doing that, it changes other people's lives. All right, guys. I hope you guys are enjoying Rob Kelly's episode this far. If you are, make sure you check out part two. Keep watching.